Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by Limitless Estates, where Kyle and Lolita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family by using real estate as your vehicle. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. Today on the show, we have Dino Champagne. Dino, thanks for joining us today. How's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Good. Nice to have you on the show. Uh, Before joining uh, Asset Preservation, Inc. in 2002 as division manager, uh, Dino spent 14 years as a commercial real estate broker handling sales and lease negotiations. Prior to that, she was a commercial lending officer for a major bank for 15 years. Given Dino's experience, she has conducted over 1,500 accredited seminars on IRC 1031 exchanges, amongst many other various real estate topics. So today's segment will definitely be an educational one, so be sure to take notes. With that being said, Dino, could you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do? Well, uh, you pretty much covered what I do. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I've been with Asset Preservation. Now it's going to be 17 years uh, this month, actually. And uh, my my role with Asset Preservation is to educate and ultimately do sales in the 1031 space. Uh, So that's my function. I cover uh, four counties, uh, Los Angeles, Ventura, Inland Empire, and um, uh, Riverside counties. I do have business outside of the areas, but that's my my local targeting market for uh, for the sales side of my business. So, and I assist with exchanges, reverse exchanges, forward exchanges, uh, easy deals, complex deals. Perfect. Awesome! It all sounds complex, which is why we're talking to you today, and hopefully <laughs> you can give some clarification on it. So today we are going to discuss 1031 exchanges. Can you give our listeners an idea or an overview of what a 1031 exchange is and how it works? Okay, from the the highest level, a 1031 is an option or an opportunity for an investor who is selling investment property to defer tax. And so it's actually a part of the tax code itself. So that the whole purpose of it is basically to a continuation of ownership in real property. So someone, for example, might you know sell a building and then they exchange somewhere else. It, and they they're moving everything over with it from one to the uh, from one property to another. So that's what the 1031 is all about: is an opportunity to defer paying any taxes. That's the big picture. Perfect. And so I know there are some strict guidelines to ensuring a successful exchange. Can you talk about these, and how do you need to structure your deal to get the benefits of it? Okay. Well, the first the first thing that's important to understand that a 1031 only qualifies if it's in a uh, property that's held for investment and for trade or business. So if it's somebody's principal residence and they're living in the property, so if it's a single family home and they're living in it, uh, there's a separate tax code. And even if they have some tax implications, they cannot do a 1031 in that situation. So uh, one of the concerns, you know, what the issues is, is that you, when you're, you're selling investment property, and so when you're doing that, yeah, first thing you want to find out is what's your gain in the sale of that property. Uh, and we can, we'll talk a little bit about your steps that you should take in the interim. But 
one of the guidelines for having a 1031 uh, qualified is you have to have a qualified intermediary. And that's my function in the transaction. Uh, and then, you, as you said, there are specific guidelines. So there are four main guidelines in the 1031. It's the having a qualified intermediary, uh, dealing with the time frame for the exchange, the exchange equation. Uh, you know, so those are some of the main guidelines for the 1031 itself and what is like-kind property. Uh, the role of qualified intermediary is critical in an exchange because as a qualified intermediary, what we do is we get assigned into the contract. Uh, so technically, we become the seller of the relinquished property or the sale property. We also become the buyer of the replacement property, uh, or the purchase property. We restrict the taxpayer from touching any of their money during the exchange. So that is the major role of the qualified intermediary. It's not like you can sell a property and go out and buy a property and call it an exchange if there was not a qualified intermediary. So our role in this type of transaction is, is, is the linchpin, if you will, that keeps it all together. Uh, when the escrow closes or the closing takes place, then the time frame, which is another one of the guidelines, comes into play. The time frame now officially begins. And the, you have 45 calendar days from the date of closing to identify any property or properties that you would like to acquire in an exchange. After the 45 days, you have an additional 135 days to complete your exchange. So an exchange from beginning to end is 180 calendar days. Now, I state it the way I just did because sometimes people think, well, I have 180 days to complete my exchange and I have 45 days to identify. So it's the 45 is included in the 180 calendar days. There are no starts, redos, uh, do-overs, mulligans, or whatever you want to do call it. When Once the timeline starts, the timeline has to continue. Uh, only on a presidentially declared disaster might an investor who's involved in an exchange at the time it happens have some kind of an extension. It's not something we, any of us would really want to see happen <laughs> to have right. another maybe 120 days to complete the exchange. And then you get into a lot of little critical things there. So everybody understands that these timelines are statutory and they plan for them it helps the exchange process go forward. Uh, the next component in the guideline of the exchange is buying property that's of like kind. When we talk about like kind property, that's a term that even as, as, of, as, as often as we talk about 1031s, people still get a little confused with. And like kind in effect means investment real estate for investment real estate. So, or property that I'm holding for my trade or business. What does not qualify for like kind? That would be interest in a partnership or buying, uh, buying your primary residence, for example. That doesn't qualify for like-kind property. But the good news is it's pretty broad. So I can sell a single-family rental. I can buy an apartment building. I can go from an apartment building to a single-tenant triple net. I can go from raw land if I've held it for investment purposes and buy income-producing property. So that's the good news about like-kind is it's pretty broad when it comes to the real estate. Right, so it's not as narrow as some individuals think it is. And then the fourth requirement is that in order to defer the gain, you need to buy property equal to or greater than your net sale price of the property that you sold. 
So if you sold the property, for example, for $500,000 and your closing costs were, say, $25,000, just for ease of math, you'd be looking at buying property of $475,000 or more. You must spend all of the cash and you have to replace any existing loans uh, from the transaction that you just left. So those are the four main guidelines to facilitating a 1031. Uh, there is one more that comes into play, and that's how uh, you're vesting, basically how you're, who's the taxpayer doing the exchange. So the same taxpayer selling also must be the same taxpayer purchasing. So those are the main guidelines for doing a 1031. Okay. And you mentioned, and thank you for that, because it's, it's very detailed and, um, you know, I'm sure everyone has a bunch of questions going through their mind, which we'll hopefully touch on. So you mentioned you cannot sell your primary residence in 1031 that. What about for people that maybe bought a duplex or a fourplex or living in one unit and they're renting out the other three? Excellent question. And that's why I framed it the way I did. Uh, when you're talking about your example, duplex, fourplex, triplex, whatever, where you have a situation where you're occupying one of the units as your primary residence, that's considered split treatment. So their tax advisor will basically carve out the, the percentage of what their unit is to the whole. And the portion that is not the primary is the portion that can be, you know, can qualify for an exchange. So they're gonna break it out. So for example, uh, again, ease of math, <laughs> if I had a fourplex and it was a million dollars and all the units were equal in size and equal in quality, then each unit may be 25%. So 250,000 would not be coming into the exchange because that's the primary residence, but the other 750, let's just say would. So you have to basically, you have to spread it out. That number can be altered depending on the square footage of the unit, the, uh, the improvements inside each unit. So it's up to their accountant to give that number as to what, you know, how that breaks out. Okay. Yeah, that's that's important because I know a lot of the listeners are, are doing stuff like that. So that's great. Um, so are there any other parties involved in 1031 exchange other than basically seller and in your company? Uh, definitely. <laughs> yeah, the parties that are actually involved in the transaction themselves would be the real estate agent, uh, if they're working with a real estate agent, uh, an escrow company, a title company, there's going to be lenders that are all going to be a part of this. So we're all in the same tra transaction. We just have different roles. And all of our roles are very, very important. And when you're dealing with all the various parties involved, the escrow company, the title company, the lender, the real estate agent, the client doing the exchange and the qualified intermediary, it's important that the communication stream is, is, is a good one because sometimes there's breakdowns and all of that, and that can create some some uh, which word, anxiousness <laughs> in certain transactions if people aren't communicating uh, throughout the process. Is that mainly because of the time restrictions or are there, is there just more paperwork that all the various parties are going to have to go through uh, through the whole process? Well, I think, it, I think what it is, is, is for the party doing the exchange, some of this it can be very overwhelming. Uh, for example, anybody selling a piece of property, as I'm sure you're aware, it, there's, a, there's a ton of paperwork that comes in with that. There's a lot of disclosures, there's the, the uh, statement of information, all the stuff that you, you deal with in a normal transaction. And then now adding on top of that, you've got the layer of the qualified intermediary. So we're going to be bringing in a whole new set of documents to be added to all the other documents. And sometimes for the 
parties doing the exchange, it can be a tad overwhelming for them because I, I've got a hundred documents. I've, I've, this has to be notarized, that has to be notarized, and now I'm getting in a whole new set. And uh, so I think it's because of the amount of information that comes very rapidly and everything generally is going to have a time uh, constraint on it. When it comes to the, for the exchange documents themselves, what's important, and I mean, I know this is going to sound silly, I'm about to say it, but I have to tell you the reason I say it is because it does come up. And when people think they set up an exchange and they receive these documents from the qualified intermediary, there are occasions where they don't sign documents or they don't know what to do with the documents. So the key is, is that they have to sign those documents or they're not in effect. Because when, for us to be a part of the transaction, they have to have fully executed exchange documents. So again, that's important. When the lender gets involved, it's usually gonna be on the buy side. And the lender's gonna wanna know certain things like how much money we're holding. Uh, you know, very important for the real estate professional and the client to know how much money they have to replace for debt and how much they have to spend for their down payment. And in situations where they may have sold the property where the loan amount was very low, but now they're going to take advantage of the 1031 and buy more. Because remember I said equal to or greater than. Mm -hmm. Always very good at a 1031. But maybe the lending programs are very enticing where they say, whoa, you can, you're buying say a million dollar property you sold for 900,000, you know, so you're doing okay. Well, but if you don't spend all of your cash, you're not going to be doing okay in an exchange. So it's, that's where it's important for the lender to understand what the exchange party, the taxpayer doing the exchange needs to spend to put down on the property. So again, we get back to the communication and you're talking about the timing of things. Uh, yeah, it can get a little stressful, you know, as they're getting to the end for the replacement property side. That's where most of the stress comes in. Right. So it does seem like an overwhelming process. So is there something that, let's just say someone wants to do an exchange, that you would tell them steps one through three to maybe alleviate some of that on the front end that they could take? Sure. I, I think my steps one, two, three would be the first step is when you're getting ready to, when you're considering selling your investment property, you know, obviously you're gonna, you wanna to talk to a real estate professional so they can give you the, what the market's going to be going in that. But you also need to talk with your tax advisor. And one of the things I find, and I've been doing this for 17 years in, in thousands of exchanges, is the fact that people don't always communicate with their tax advisors. The reason it's so critical to speak with your tax advisor in the beginning is to know whether you even need to do an exchange or not. Mm. It's all based on gain. And so I don't know what their taxes look like. I don't know what they've been doing over the years. So maybe they have some suspended losses or they have some other sort of losses that can offset the gain on the sale of this property. Or on the, on the converse of that, maybe they, they're selling the property for what they bought it for and thinking they don't need to do an exchange, not understanding how depreciation has an impact and or if they bought the property in an exchange, how that has an impact. So always talk to the tax advisor, you know, to, that is your first, should be your first uh, communication, all right? The second would be talk to somebody like me, the qualified intermediary. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go over the process of the exchange, and then I'm going to answer the questions that they might have. And then if, they're, if their situation is complicated and there's something that I can't, you know, because I cannot give actual legal advice 
And so what I'll help them do is form the question that they need to ask their accountant to see how this plays out. Those questions usually come in, well, how long am I supposed to hold the property? Or can I take title to a property in this? Or if I'm dropping out of a partnership? So I know I'm getting a little in the weeds on this, but the reality is, is there are certain things that are very complex. So in a 1031, it's it, what you might have done in one transaction may not be the same as going forward. I'm not saying the guidelines have, are, are different. It's just what's contained inside of the transaction itself. And then I think the third step would be make sure that you're working with professionals on the service side for the escrow, for your lender that understands 1031s, understands the timing of it, the criticalness of getting everything that needs to be done within a timely manner. Perfect. Okay, so now that we've scared everyone off on the 1031 exchange, <laughs> let's talk about maybe some some really good benefits of it. So is it possible to use a 1031 exchange and to never pay taxes on the gain if you do it properly? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, you can exchange, exchange, exchange until you meet your maker. Uh, you know, I call that a long-term solution. <laughs> but that is one way, you know, that is one way. Uh, there is another way where sometimes people may ultimately move into one of the properties they may have exchanged into, and they're going to just stay in that property uh, and then as a primary residence and then pass away at that point too. So, I mean, there is, that is the one avenue of, of doing that. Uh, but at any time you can decide to pay the tax and it may vary from individual to individual based on what their income stream is looking at, looking like as they're, you know, going through life in general. So, I mean, I've had situations where individuals have done some exchanges and they bought, I don't know, 15, 20 properties. And what their plan was, was to incrementally cash out. So therefore they're not getting the big hit if they <laughs> bought one property and decided not to go forward with an exchange and wanted to, and didn't want, didn't like the first alternative, <laughs> okay, passing away. Is there a time limit from, let's just say, you know, you bought a single family home, you had 1031 exchange, you're renting it out, and then you do decide, hey, I'm just going to live in this house until, you know, I, I pass. Is there a time frame that you can actually do that and not get hit on the tax? Well, that's a question that's asked quite often. And so I'm going to phrase it the way I would phrase it in any email, because that's how the questions come in most of the time. All right. When somebody is doing an exchange, the, the both the relinquished property the sale property and the replacement property, the purchase property must be held for investment purposes. As I mentioned earlier, you can't buy your primary residence with that. So the question is, when can I move into the property? Well, what's the taxpayer's intent? So the taxpayer's intent when they buy the replacement property needs to be that they're intending to hold it for investment purposes. Now, somewhere down the road, can their intent change? Of course. So should it, can it change in two months? That's gonna be a little bit risky. Can it change in two years? Have you established that you didn't intend to buy this property for investment purposes and now you're changing that, your intent later? So the question to, the answer to that question is consult your tax advisor. All, <laughs> later is always gonna be more than, than better uh, than, you know, than earlier. And mainly because if you ever get audited, you have to be able to establish what was your intent. And there's cases on both sides of the coin for moving into it too quickly uh, and failing and moving into it quickly and, and their exchange being upheld. Uh, so it's about intent. So. Okay. 
so what happens if you 1030 would exchange for years and years and years, 30 years, 20 different buildings, and then you pass away and you leave the properties to your heirs? Okay. Uh, right now, under and notice I'm framed this, under current tax law, uh, the heirs get a step up in basis. So the heirs are going to inherit the property at whatever the market value is at the time of passing. That's established by either getting a formal appraisal or maybe getting a broker opinion of value, whatever, you know, whatever they use to establish that for their, uh, for their estate. The gain that the taxpayer has been deferring all this year, all those years, is, is forgiven. Hmm. So it's not passed on to the, it's not passed on to the heirs. But I've prefaced it by saying under current tax law, because tax laws can change next year, next five years. Okay. Yeah, that's a great benefit as it sits right now. Mm-hmm. Can you do a 1031 exchange if you're investing with your self-directed IRA? You wouldn't probably need to be doing a 1031 if you're dealing with the self-directed IRA because it's an IRA. Uh, the only time that I've ever been involved in an exchange where there was a self-directed IRA that was quote unquote the entity was when there was a when there was financing. Okay, because then there's a UBIT tax, which is, I believe it's the unearned related income tax or something, or unearned, unearned unrelated business income tax. Uh, so if there's UBIT, then you may have to do an exchange with you dealing with self-directed IRAs. So if there's financing involved. Uh, but generally speaking, it's not a product that I'm involved with on a daily basis, that's for sure. Are you able to 1031 exchange a property into a syndication? Uh, if you're talking about syndication in the sense of a partnership, no. If you're talking about, if you're using the word syndication loosely, where you're buying in co-ownership with other people as a tenant in common, yes. Okay. I am talking about it more in, a, in the, the legalized and, and structured uh, format where there's a PPM and uh, LPs and GEPs and, and the whole thing. So no. No, because... That. Right, because the tax code expressly excludes the ability to exchange real property, which is fee, into a partnership interest. It's, okay. It expressly excludes that. Can you be in a syndication and 1031 your portion into another deal? Flips the other way too. You cannot okay. exchange a partnership interest coming out or going in. Got it. Okay. Do you have any major success stories you can share from a client utilizing a 1031 exchange so maybe we can understand the, the, the power of this tool? Well, I think one of the things, I mean, any exchange that's actually completed is a success. And I, you know, because it, 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 it's, I don't want to scare people away from a 1031. It, it just, the main thing to doing a 1031 is communication and understanding what the timeframes are, the rules, and, and be cognizant of those times. Uh, and, and how the time frames and everything work within the exchange. Successes that come in a 1031 is when people are planning well in advance. So in other words, they, they, they're putting their property on the market, uh, they get it listed in, in a low inventory market with good pricing and a good property, it's gonna sell pretty quickly. So to make a successful transaction work, you wanna already be looking for that replacement property. And it's not uncommon, and I've seen I've had a lot of transactions in the last couple of months mainly, where the, the people that have sold have already been under contract with their purchases. So they're closing on their sale and their purchase within two weeks of each other. 
And that is a success right there because now you're not stressed out about the 45 days. It's all, it's all neat, tied up in a bow and it, it's closing and moving forward. So to me, a success in the 1031 is planning and knowing that while this may seem a little overwhelming, it, it's, worth, it's worth it when you think about how much you'd have to give in taxes. And when you think about taxes, you figure anywhere between 30 to 35 to 40 percent of your profits could be going to uh, to both the state and federal if you're in a state uh, income tax, if your state has income tax. So. so are you saying that you're allowed to actually have a property under contract prior to selling the uh, your initial property and then 1031 exchanging into the property that you already have under contract? Yes, because you haven't closed on the purchase. Got so it. that's the key. So when you're getting, so sometimes individuals get, I will say it, a little ahead of their skis where they haven't even listed their property yet, but they're thinking, okay, well, I want to go buy here, there, or wherever. And they find a property, they're out looking for a new property and they find this property and they go, oh my gosh, I have to put an offer on it. Well, if you put an offer on it, that's fine. As long as your, your purchase is going to close after your sale. So if you're doing something where you're getting under contract before you even have a buyer for your property or before your property is even closed, it's important that you either have, you create a contract where you have extensions or contingencies. So very important. So the timing is, is, is critical because if you get under contract and you can't, you don't get your property sold, then are you, are you going to buy that property? Do you have an out? Now, there is another product called a reverse exchange, which is extremely expensive and extremely complicated in the sense of not every, while it's available, not everybody can do one, but that's not an exchange you want to go forward. You don't want to go toward. You want to, that's a, that's an exchange of the last resort. Okay. Resort. What would maybe just quickly be a situation where you would need to utilize that reverse exchange? When, when you find the replacement property and the seller's not willing to wait for you to sell close on your sale because they have a ton of other offers and you have the financial capacity to buy that property, because keep in mind when we're talking about doing a reverse, you're doing the trends. We call it a reverse because you're doing it backwards. You're, you're doing it in reverse. You're closing on the purchase before you close on the sale. So if you have the financial wherewithal to, to close on that property, because most people need the money from the sale to buy the new property. So if you, if, uh, so we do reverses all the time and it's a matter of you're, you're taking advantage of a property that the seller's not gonna wait for you. And so that's when we see reverses that come in more often. But if you can avoid it, you know, by all means, try to, try to work around it. Perfect. And so is there anything maybe I didn't ask about 1031 that you can tell our listeners about? I mean, we covered quite a bit, but just want to make sure everyone understands how this tool is used. Well, I think we covered a bit. I think one of the things we did not touch on was the identification and what's considered identifying and, and the, the rules. Uh, in the first 45 days of the exchange are going to be your most critical to the exchange because that's the period in which you have to identify what you're going to buy. So let me explain what that actually means in my world, and then we'll talk about it in the practical sense. In my world, it means that the taxpayer doing the exchange is going to complete a piece of paper that's provided, okay? Most accommodators or qualified intermediaries provide this, this document, 
they're going to put in there the, the address, the city, the state of the property or properties they would like to acquire in the exchange. They're going to sign it, they're going to date it, and they're going to return it before midnight, if you will, of the 45th day. Now, whether it's a calendar day, even if it falls on a Saturday or a Sunday, it still needs to come in. Now, when we talk about identifying, there are three rules that taxpayers can utilize for the identification. The first rule, which is the most commonly used rule, is the three property rule. So you're physically limited to three addresses, but the dollar amounts are not relevant unless you're buying co-ownership with someone. So if I'm doing my exchange by myself and I'm identifying three properties and I'm selling say for $500,000 and say I had no loan on the property, so I really wanna leverage up, I'll say I can identify a property for a million five. I can identify a property for a million. I can identify a property for a million two. And then buy whichever one or all three of them that I want. I'm not, I don't have to buy all three, but I'm not, I have no limitation to the dollar amount. If I wish to identify four or more properties, now those dollar amounts are going to come into play. So the next rule that you would default to would be the 200% rule. So under the 200% rule, I can identify four, four or more properties. But under the 200% rule, I can only identify to the 200% of what I sold for. So if I sold for 500,000, sure, I can identify five, six, 10 properties. But when I add them up, it cannot be more than a million dollars. And then I can buy whatever combination I need to meet my minimum exchange value of $500,000. If I identify a million one in that example, and I've identified more than four properties, I'm now in the 95% rule, which means unlimited number of properties, unlimited dollar amount. But I have to buy 95% of the total value of all the properties I've identified, which basically means you have to buy them all. Uh, most people will either be in the three property or the 200% rule, the people that are going to be in the 200% rule are usually under two categories that I've noticed. One, and they're selling in high-valued property areas, but they're buying in lower-valued property areas where you can do that. So if somebody's selling in, uh, say, for example, in Long Beach, okay, for $700,000, but they want to go buy property in Florida or Alabama, Ohio, uh, Texas, Nevada, where you're buying single-family rentals, then you could easily be under the 200% rule because the values there may be you know, 150,000, 75,000, somewhere around there. And then you can pick and choose whatever ones you want to make your value, uh, to make your exchange. Or somebody selling for a very large value property, say maybe $10 million, and they're buying smaller, maybe $2 million properties. So it, it just depends what people are doing. But most people are going to be in the three property rule, and occasionally some can fall into the 200% rule. Yeah, and I think the reason why you get an intermediary involved early is because of all this information that you really need to know. So I think that's uh, number one on the list for sure. <laughs> for sure. And then, but the thing of it is too, is is I think what is, is important is to ask questions because people do get confused with the identification because when I say, so I t so that's, those are the rules. Now let's get to the next level is when you're, do you have to be under contract to put those properties on the list that you're going to provide me? And the answer is no. However, you can only purchase what's on your list. So you cannot give me a list of three properties and then on day 52, come up with a property completely unrelated to what you put on the list. So it has to be, 
so that's why it gets really important to understand the first 45 days and what those rules are. So, so it can be challenging uh, when it gets to that, but communication. So if you, the only danger is people don't know what to ask, that can be a danger. But we try to help them, guide them as along the way as possible. So if somebody's gonna send in for the identification, for example, I tell folks, send it in during business hours so the team that's processing the file can take a look at what you did, okay? If there's a problem, or if you put down four properties, they can say, is this what you intended to do? All right, if you have a, you know, if, if it's not, then go, oh, we, we can, we can revoke and replace the list. That's fine, as long as you're still within the 45 days. But if you get outside of the 45 days and you've made a mistake, there's nothing we can do at that point. Got it. Great. Thank you for that. All right. So we're going to go into our final four questions. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> All right, Dana, let's dive right in. What is the one tool that you use in real estate investing that you could not do without? Uh, one tool. Um, I think having people on the ground for where I want to invest that are, are experts in their area and, and people that I trust that are going to give me good information that I can use to analyze you know, what it is I want to do. I want to know, because I'm not an area, I'm not an expert in every market, that's for sure. So if I'm definitely going to go into uh, buy real estate in a market that I'm not familiar with, I want experts in that area. So to me, that would be if, having good, good people on the ground that uh, are there to help me out would be, I, I guess, a great tool if you can find the right folks. So mm -hmm. having a good network. <laughs> yeah, that's so crucial. Yeah. Can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing so far and what is the main takeaway for our listeners? Okay. Uh, the biggest mistake I made, I would say that one of the things that if I were to do it over again, <laughs> when uh, being from Southern California, right, we have a view of how real property is here and how it appreciates relatively rapidly. Uh, I exchanged, for example, from California to another state. And I think you, you have to understand the appreciation level in a different state. So am I looking for cash flow or appreciation? If I'm looking for cash flow, I'll probably find it more outside of the state. But if I'm looking for fast appreciating property, that's generally not the rule that I've, that I've experienced. Uh, I think not knowing, getting good property managers. I, I think when you're, out of, when you're an out-of-state investor, your property manager is going to make or break your, your property. And if, if a situation, if you're getting into something that has a homeowners association, uh, who's, man, who's running the homeowners association? Do they have a property management company? And then vet out that property management company. So those are some of the things I would say that if you're an out-of-state investor, uh, as an out-of-state investor, what I've experienced, and if I had a do-over, I'd probably you know, vet that out a little bit deeper. Mm -hmm. Perfect. What is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? Uh, exercise. <laughs> uh, what do I need to do to grow my life to the next level? I think life, you know, I, I think life is a constant learning process. And uh, if I can master the, the, the technology as, as, as you, as you 30 somethings do, it would be great. I can do it a little bit faster. I, I think learning and staying, staying abreast of everything that's coming out new, the new stuff, it keeps you young. And, um, you, you know, I'd be able to relate better, <laughs> I guess, to my grandkids when they get older. 
But Perfect. Keep learning, keep learning. You never stop learning. Yeah, exactly. Uh, lastly, Dina, where can people find out more about you? Uh, let's see. Well, my office number, you want to get my phone number, email address? What would you like? Okay. Uh, Whatever you feel comfortable. Okay. Well, uh, my, my uh, local contact number is uh, offices 866-857-1031. My email address mm -hmm. is my first, yeah. <laughs> Shocking how that works. <laughs> so again, 866-857-1031 is my office number. Uh, my email address is pretty simple. It's my first name. And yes, Dino is my real name. It's D-I-N-O at A-P-I exchange.com. So Dino at A-P-I exchange.com. I welcome all phone calls, all questions, more than happy to answer the questions. I like to say it's the one you didn't ask that will get you in trouble. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for providing our listeners with the proper knowledge of the exchange process and how to fully benefit and maximize one proceeds from their prior investments. So uh, whether you're a current investor or plan to be in the future, this is something that you definitely want to hone in on. So Dino, thanks so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Dino. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the passive income through multifamily real estate podcast, and to get access to today's show notes and to previous shows, visit limitless-estates.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode. <music>